Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Gerald Steinberg, a founder and president of NGO Monitor and a professor at Bar-Ilan University, join us to discuss the NGO to Gaza terrorism pipeline. Professor Steinberg will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Prof Professor Gerald Steinberg. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you all for joining me tonight. There are a lot of issues to discuss and time is limited, so I'm gonna launch right into it. I'm gonna talk, I wanna start by setting the stage. I'm sitting now in Jerusalem. We had a little bit of a um, air raid warning siren about a day and a half ago, around eight o'clock in the morning on Sunday when uh, a group called Palestinian Islamic Jihad based in Gaza launched a couple of rockets in the direction of Jerusalem. They were shot down quite a few miles or kilometers before they got here. But I think the more important aspect is that in two days, two, two days of fighting, this small group called Palestinian Islamic Jihad managed to shoot a thousand rockets and missiles, including a number at Tel Aviv and along the, the coast. These are not firecrackers, the question is, where did these all come from? Many of them were made in underground tunnels, protected with the concrete lining, massive uh, constructions underground. Where did the materials for that come from? And there's only one clear answer. It's from the billions of dollars of aid that go into Gaza, ostensibly for humanitarian purposes, every year. A significant amount of that material is stolen. Many of the houses have been destroyed in the various wars have not been rebuilt, even though all this aid has gone in, concrete and pipes and all sorts of other materials, because it's systematically stolen, diverted for terrorism. Point that I wanna to emphasize today is the role of humanitarian aid organizations and particularly non-governmental organizations in this process. The aid comes from a number of different uh, frameworks. Some of it comes from the United Nations uh, through the uh, UNRWA, which has been around now since 1949, taking care of Palestinian refugees that almost no longer exist, perpetuating the conflict. That's relatively well known, and uh, people have discussed and documented that for a number of years. Also from a UN agency called uh, the um, Commissioner for Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, which runs a big operation, including propaganda in Gaza. And a significant amount of money comes from non-governmental organizations. Now, there's a problem with that terminology, as I will discuss in a minute, because a number of them are not really non-governmental. But some of them are well-known. Oxfam, people, many people know about that. It has got a budget of uh, over a, at least half a billion dollars a year, half a billion dollars a year. Uh, of which a, a not a small amount goes to Gaza and disappears. Other organizations I'll talk more about is World Vision. CARE is also providing some uh, funding for, for Gaza, etc. That's a big business. It's an industry. And just the NGOs alone provide hundreds of millions of dollars a year to an area, a very small area, that's controlled entirely by terrorists. One of the biggest dilemmas or one of the biggest problems of this process is that as soon as the aid crosses the border, largely from Israel, sometimes from Egypt into Gaza, there's no way for an aid agency 
to really monitor that material. They don't have individuals in Gaza that are independent. They hire people, local people, they hire people from Gaza, people who are either members of terrorist organizations or subject to a great deal of pressure from the terrorist organizations to allow this diversion or to be part of the diversion process. And it just disappears. Large amounts disappear. It's not just in Gaza. One of the biggest problems that humanitarian aid agency has around the world is its links to and connections and operations in areas controlled by terrorists. One area that is quite close to us, where money, large amounts of money, hundreds of millions a year disappear, is Syria. In the middle, still maybe the end of a conflict, very intense conflict that began in 2011, in which uh, various re rebellion groups are fighting the, uh, the Syrian corrupt Syrian army run by Hafez Assad. Aid there also, there's no way to track where it goes. And very large amounts that are meant for people who are suffering displaced in the middle of the fighting get stolen primarily by the Syrian army, for the Syrian government, for the Assad, corrupt Assad regime. Where does all the aid that goes to Yemen go to? Where does it end up? None of the aid agencies that provide it can really give a proper answer. Africa is a classic case in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in particular, where there's constant fighting, massive aid, caravan, that's the name of a book that was written a number of years ago, in which the author, a journalist, a Dutch journalist, documents the degree to which the aid agencies take no responsibility. On the contrary, they work with the terrorists in order to ensure that their operations continue so they continue to raise money, do the advertising, do the promotion, do the public relations to tell their donors, many of which are governments, they're doing all these wonderful things when in reality what they're doing very often is buying off the terrorists. So this is a systematic problem. This is not something that's restricted to Gaza and to the Hamas-controlled or terror-controlled region there, but it's one that many of us who sit here suffer from on a regular basis. These problems, I said, are a result of a lack of oversight, lack of due diligence. The money is piped in and it disappears. Especially, this is a specific pro problem when you're dealing with foreign government funds. And I wanna give you a couple of illustrations so that it becomes more clear. And you, you can see this is not just a theoretical problem. The case that was, re a very important case that was recently um, uh, decided by the Israeli courts involves a massive international humanitarian organization called World Vision. It operates around the world, collects money, has a uh, major operations in North America, in Europe, in the UK, and also in Australia. In the case of Gaza, the Australian government, through connections with World Vision Australia, provided on the order of 50, more than $50 million a year to World Vision in order to provide funding for humanitarian aid operations in the division of the World Vision called West Bank, Jerusalem, and Gaza. They provided approximately $15 million a year. I uh, went over for at least 10 years. I say approximately because in fact, as we'll find out in a minute, the people in World Vision who were providing the money 
did not either have a clear picture of what they were providing, or they had many different pictures and they knew that they were covering up. About in, 20, in 2016, about six years ago, the head of World Vision Operations in Gaza, a gentleman by the name of Mohammed Al-Halabi, was arrested by the Israeli security services for having diverted $50 million over 10 years from that Australian aid money provided from the government to World Vision towards very specific Hamas terror operations. And what they, the indictment contained a lot of details, including naval equipment ostensibly for fishing that was used for commando operations, building commando capabilities, um, salary packets, funding, cash that was provided, was supposed to be provided to poor people that was sent to, was taken by members of Hamas, leaders of Hamas, all sorts of other specific, uh, military strong points that were and bases that were funded through this money. It was a very specific indictment. After a long trial, partly because Australia, uh, World Vision, and Mr. Halabi continued to try to delay the process with all sorts of procedural um, issues, Mr. Halabi was convicted in Israeli court for having diverted $50 million of aid into the Hamas terror operation. Now, one of the major aspects of this, most of the evidence was provided in, in closed sessions, and it was largely based on security-related uh, information through the uh, anti-terror, counter-terror operations of the Israeli government, but there are also some very clear public documents. Those documents mainly were from World Vision itself. There were at least three separate sets of accounts that provided entirely different amounts for the budget that World Vision was providing for its operations in Gaza. One of those sets of, and they differed by large amounts. One of those sets of documents was provided by the World Vision registered charity in Israel, World Vision Israel. And there, the amounts that differed between what they had taken in and what they had spent totaled about $50 million, which just happened to be the amount that was also uh, attributed to Mr. Al-Khalabi in his operations of diverting funding. Now, we became clear when World Vision said, well, we didn't know this was going on. And it's, in fact, it's all big Israeli uh, uh, political operation. And they just don't want, want Gaza people to, to be able to uh, prosper, to be able to get this aid. Uh, what World Vision said was that, in fact, the amounts that Israel said were diverted could not possibly be because World Vision didn't provide even close to that amount of money every year. And yet their own documents through the World Vision um, registered charity in or um, nonprofit that was registered in Israel showed precisely those amounts. So what either the World Vision officials in Australia were not being uh, straightforward, I'll use that language carefully, in what they claimed, and they were all over the media claiming that they, they, they could not possibly have been responsible for this diversion because not nearly this amount was provided. Either they were not being honest about it, or they actually didn't know what they were doing, what they were providing. And that's a major problem. That is a major problem for many of these charitable organizations. For them, the major issue is to be able to do virtue signaling. In some cases, it's political. Providing funding for people in places like Gaza and Syria and elsewhere to be shown to be doing important charitable work, but without paying any attention to the details. After Mr. Khalabi was arrested, 
uh, and uh, the World Vision sent officials over to, to find out what was going on. I met with some of them and I asked them, when you came, when you provided the funding, did you do any kind of uh, oversight? How did you know where the money went? And they said, well, we did inspections. We came and we did tours every once in a while, a couple of times a year. And the people in Gaza there took us on a tour and they showed us the farming areas where our money was being applied. And I said, well, did you bother to ask them what was being done underground? And they said, no, we didn't. Those are issues where we didn't have, uh, we didn't know about, or we didn't ask questions, or we didn't, they didn't answer the question. But in fact, it was right underground underneath those agricultural areas that World Vision ostensibly was paying for to be farmed, where all this tunneling and building of rockets was taking place. It really appeared they just didn't want to know. They must have known because it was very clear after all the various engagements, particularly after the war in 2014, and they came, this was afterwards, we're talking about the arrest taking place in 2016, that that's where the diversion went. And yet this was clearly a case of see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil. International aid operations that work in terror-linked areas need have a moral responsibility and a responsibility to the taxpayers whose money they're spending to do this due diligence, to ask the questions. And if they can't track where the money goes, then they can't provide the money because they have no way of knowing that it goes to the people that they're claiming that they're trying to assist. I'll give you one other quick example, a very different one <clears throat> of a Palestinian framework called United Agricultural Workers Committees. It is one of the biggest, I use the word charities or non-governmental organizations run out of, the, uh, out of Gaza. It is an organization that gets large amounts of money tens of millions of euros and dollars a year, mainly from European governments. They are essentially patrons and clients that have been in operation for many years. Partly based on the research that NGO Monitor did over the years, we began to identify a number of individuals from the UAWC that were simultaneously high-level officials within the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine Terror Organization. This was part of a network that gradually became clear in which the PFLP ran a series of NGOs. They had an NGO network because that was a great way to get money and to gain recognition. And the Europeans said, here, lots of money we're gonna provide because this is very important work that you're doing. There was a terror attack that took place in 2019 in which a 17 year old girl by the name of Rina Schnerb was murdered and her father and brother were wounded. They happened to be Dutch. And it turned out the Dutch government had provided $13 million to UAWC, to this organization. The people who were the Palestinians who were arrested for carrying out this terror bombing were officials from the PFLP who also had significant positions within the UAWC, largely in terms of treasury and funding and working on um, acquiring and budgeting for the UAWC. In other words, as the term has been used, they were terrorists at night and they were charitable uh, NGO officials during the day. The Dutch government reluctantly, after looking at the evidence, first suspended the funding and then did an investigation in which exactly the same information was, I'll quote, use the term, uncovered. 
34 significant individuals connected with UAWC also had positions with the PFLP terrorist organization. And the Dutch government then announced it was suspending, it was ending its funding. They should have known this years earlier. The information was there. And yet they had to go through all the hoops and a number of European governments are still providing the funding, notwithstanding both the evidence and the fact that UAWC was de designated as a PFLP terror front by the Israeli government in uh, October 2021, and with despite all the availability of the public evidence. So the bottom line here is that there is a very large scale industry doing important work in theory in helping people who are stuck in or areas that are controlled by terrorists, but very often with little to no oversight, due diligence, checks and balances. The, the government officials who provide the money and the heads of the charities come and have the pictures taken so that they can advertise the important work that they do and therefore do requests and get more funding. But the same problem remains year after year after year and until it's taken seriously and a combination of much more stringent monitoring is imposed on the funding. And at the same time, decisions are made that when that money cannot be tracked into the terrorist controlled areas, it cannot be provided, perhaps through needing an independent framework, not the government aid agency that wants to show that it's giving, doing good, good deeds and being part of the, uh, the virtue signaling, not the aid agency like World Vision or UAWC that, or the NGO that uh, provides the funding and that in itself is able to show and gain its importance and as part of the NGO industry, but needs to have a much broader and much more rigorous form of oversight and monitoring. I'll leave it at that. That's, um, I think we've, we've covered the first 15 minutes. I see there are a number of questions, but Stacey, I'll leave it to you and you'll tell me how we want to uh, do this. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that overview. I'm sure you could have spoken for, for much, much longer on this. Uh, but JL asked, if the abuse of these funds is so obvious and proven, why aren't more countries ending their contributions to these NGOs? Is this part of an anti-Israel bias on the part of these countries' governments or something more benign? It's very hard to tell why these governments continue. One of the uh, interesting, and I have to admit depressing aspects of this, is that when even the Israel, first of all, in terms of the NGO monitor reports, the governments have largely ignored it or said that they are unable to verify the same information. And now, since it's all open source material, being unable to verify is a very strange response. It basically says, we don't know about it. But I think there's another aspect too, and I'll, I'll make it brief. I've written long, detailed papers about this. There are relationships that go back 20 or more years, particularly, well, the PFLP, but also World Vision, that they make personal connections with individuals, with organizations. They become very much reliant on them. Uh, European governments do not have very strong uh, sources of information and influence among uh, the Palestinian uh, authority. But the NGOs provide that. And they're, they're really quasi, they're not even non-governmental, they're quasi-governmental. If they get all their money from governments and they are part of, in this case, the PFLP, which is a member of the PLO, it's a constituent member of the PLO, then it's very difficult to call that a non-governmental organization. 
And those types of connections, patron-client relations, I call it subcontracting. There's a real dependence both ways. And it's just very hard if, if you've been involved in this, if you're a European official doing this for five, 10, 15, even 20 years, it's very hard to admit that you were taken for a ride by terrorists and you wasted government funding, public's funding in large amounts, millions every year. And I think the answer is a combination of all these factors. Thank you so much. Chair Pride asked, uh, the NGO lack of diligence, how much is deliberate on their part? You know, we sort of just covered that, but going a little deeper. Well, I'll just say that there's a range. In uh, 2015, after the, uh, the, Gulf, the, the Gaza war that took place a year earlier, and I've forgotten what the, each one has a separate name in English and Hebrew. But that was the first time that Israel really saw massive use of rockets and tunnels uh, that had been built on the basis of stolen aid. And NGO Monitor, we did a study, we are a research organization, and we did a study of uh, the five most um, active and largest aid organizations, some of them UN, uh, Oxfam was one of them, World Vision was one of them, and we asked each organization to provide the information on how they monitored where the funding goes, and there's a range. Some were had some relatively reasonable answers. Uh, some of them said, well, we coordinate with the Israeli government. Now, there are problems with that, too, and the Israeli government will say, well, they don't really cooperate that much or coordinate, but there's some information sharing. There's some caution. Each one has a different level. Uh, World Vision, I think, World Vision came out at the bottom of this, and I think everything we've seen since the arrest that took place in 2016 and the trial is they really didn't want to know. The people there who ran it in Australia wanted all of the credit for doing these wonderful things, and there may be ideological supporting a Palestinian cause, or it may be more uh, oriented towards their image as humanitarian benefactors of these poor suffering people, but they really didn't want to know, it seems. Otherwise, they certainly could have taken some action to even monitoring, as I said, their, their statements, their, their public documents on their budgets differed by very large amounts, by tens of millions of dollars a year. And they, we pointed this out and they basically ignored it completely. And they said, no, no, this is all propaganda. So there, I think the, the answer is they just didn't want to know. Understood. I mean, it seems like these are these are pretty tangible things that they're trying to fund. Uh, how is it not better tracked? Like, how are how are they getting away with it, really? Well, once something crosses a border from a country which is open and where you can do uh, all sorts of uh, tracking to a place entirely controlled by terrorists, tracking is... The only, I'd say the only tracking that's possible is through very sophisticated digital electronic means, which have only been developed in the last, let's say, five years. But even that is being less, is not being implemented in most cases or in many of the cases. And so you still have this diversion that goes on. I think there is greater cooperation among some of the agencies, particularly some of the government agencies in Europe and the United States, certainly with the, with the Israeli government and military to try to track the materials electronically. In warehouses where you have cameras and you have constant transmission, and occasionally, yes, you'll, you'll, uh, a group of gunmen will come in, a terrorist cell will come in, but you'll at least be able to see that in real time and perhaps even take action immediately to do, to do something about that. But not to do anything when you're crossing that border is really a complete failure of any kind of responsibility. 
Hopefully that practice is uh, used more often going forward. Uh, Sharat Hayan asks, you appear to be a mainly investigative organization. Did you become involved in assisting any persecution, prosecution? The short answer is no. We are, we're not, I, we're a research organization and specifically for NGOs because 20 years ago when I began to do this as a professor of international relations who didn't really pay any attention to NGOs up until that point, but I began to see this process and that led me to begin a, what was going to be then a three-year study of the whole NGO industry and, and issues, uh, its involvement in both politics and terrorism. And that became a 20-year process. So we do research, open source research. And it shows you how available the material is if you really do the due diligence and sit down and look to see for how do we know that there are 34 members of UAWC that, are, that also have positions in the PFLP and a total of 70 in different organizations in the network that PFLP set up because it's all available on YouTube. You just look at the videos, you identify the individuals, you see, oh, this is the same person that appears in this video as, uh, as the financial officer for, uh, for Al-Khaq or for UAWC or some other organization. So you see, the, or you look at arrest records and you see that people who've been arrested, held, convicted in Israel for being involved in terrorism. You see that stuff, it's very obvious. So um, we didn't, we're not involved in prosecution, that we do make our information publicly available. It's all on our website to everybody. Uh, may or may not have been used to some degree in, in the, for instance, the World Vision trial, but we do, in a, in a very important sense, make it available to the, the funding governments because they're the ones who really should be taking action here. Thank you. Ruth Friedman asked, do you know of evidence that the terrorist organizations threaten violence against countries that suspend aid to them? I'm not aware of, of threatening a direct threat of violence, but you, certainly what, what you do see is very intense lobbying and pressure, and perhaps there are some hidden messages. But again, it goes back to these networks, these personal networks, these um, patron-client links or whatever you want to call it, so that for instance, when the Dutch government suspended funding for the UAWC, there was a huge campaign in the Netherlands. Other European governments did uh, investigations or they uh, looked into the issues after the Israeli designation of now eight organizations. And in each case, what you have is a large domestic lobby within each of the countries, whether it's in Norway or Sweden, Belgium, France, these uh, frameworks have their constituents within those governments with, or within those, those countries and, and campaign strongly and, and talk about the importance of maintaining the aid and not to be um, diverted by the Israeli propaganda, all of that you hear constantly, whether there are hidden threats in that also, um, that, that's, that's a judgment issue. Thank you. So you've been speaking a lot of the, the government action that's needed, but David S. Levine asks, why aren't Jewish communities or pretty much any constituents uh, not being made aware of these outrages and uh, pressuring legislators to end the government funding of these NGOs? Well, to some degree, they are being made aware. One of the, the impacts that we've had and is growing is that in the parliaments of the donor countries, questions are being raised by members of parliament based on various sources, including the NGO monitor reports, and calling on the government officials to account for their actions. And that's what happened in the Netherlands. It was the parliament 
that raised the question that forced the ministers to stop the funding. To some degree, certainly when there's a parliamentary debate, you get media coverage. Uh, journalists tend to be part of this, the broader envelope of uh, the NGO community. There's something called the halo effect. They're wonderful people doing wonderful things, so therefore we shouldn't question them. So it's very difficult sometimes. Uh, the European observer in Brussels doesn't want to run any articles at all that might show some questionable judgment about this kind of funding by the uh, European uh, Union. And that, there, I think that's a, that's a real uh, clear example of anti-Israel ideology. But in some countries, there are journalists who are more serious. And again, it's a matter of public funding. In Australia, this became a big issue and it really embarrassed World Vision. The Australian government did its own um, overview of this after the, uh, they didn't do an investigation. And they issued a statement that said that we have no independent information of diversion of funds. And the World Vision in Australia said, you see, the Australian government completely agrees with us. There's no diversion. But then an official, high level official of Australia said, no, that's not what we said. We did not find information because there's no public audit of World Vision. And therefore, we're unable to determine what happens. That, that's not a clear, and they didn't resume the funding. It's been six years and the funding has not yet been resumed and it may not be. So I think that there are a lot of cases where, where um, citizens are being made aware of this process, but there's also reluctance. I, I talked a lot about Europe, but the Canadian government has also increased significantly its funding in, in these NGO frameworks uh, for Palestinian groups. And there's a problem there of lack of transparency. The Canadian government says, in fact, they give money to the UN, the UN gives money to um, Oxfam, for example, and then uh, the Canadian government said, well, that's not our responsibility. We didn't even know. Well, if you can check a database, an open database in the UN and see where the funding goes, then the Canadian government should also be able to do that. Again, it, there is this, maybe it's a, calling it a bad habit or a tradition practice of not saying we give the money and it's not our responsibility to determine where it goes. Absolutely, thank you. And Richard Cronenfield asked, do you have a complete list of the NGOs involved so we know where not to send donations? And to further that, can you tell us where we can find some more of your work? That's a great question because it lets me advertise if I had, I should have. You can see in the corner by my picture, you can see that it says NGO Monitor and you just do that on Google, ngo-monitor.org if you uh, wanna just check it. And uh, there we have about 250 of the major NGOs, not just in humanitarian aid, but also claiming to do human rights, almost all of which are funded by various governments. It's not a complete list because you can never do it all, but it certainly covers the major players and each one has an entry and, and details, uh, including the, the funding that it uh, receives. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Professor Steinberg, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for the great questions. Good of to see course. You. For our viewers, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for Israel Insider. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye, everybody.